going into higher levels of lockdown in the absence of any meaningful rollout of COVID-19 vaccines in the near future, all that it will achieve is really delay the infections that might occur over the course of the next four to six weeks. Well, hello and a very happy new year to you all. 2021 can't be said to have gotten off to a good start if you're counting the rapidly rising COVID-19 case and death numbers around the country, though. And President Cyril Ramaphosa, I reliably told, is going to address the nation tonight, Monday. And it can only be to tighten restrictions on social movement and interaction. This show, Podcast from the Edge, is beginning to get real legs thanks to you, the listeners. And while it is made for the Financial Mail every Monday, it's also available now on the Apple Podcast app, on Spotify, and on iono.com, the South African platform. My guest today barely needs introducing. During the coronavirus crisis, Professor Shabir Mahdi has become the go-to voice of sanity and reason in the crisis, a widely lauded and hugely experienced professor of vaccinology at Bits University. first few months of the crisis, he sat as a member of the Ministerial Advisory Council, the body that supplied scientific advice to the government before the government in turn turned that advice into lockdown regulations, not all of which can be said to have made a lot of sense. Shabir Mahdi, thank you so much for joining me today. Let me start by putting you in the driving seat. Uh, You're no longer on the MAC, but this podcast will air before the president speaks tonight or tomorrow night. What are the top things he needs to do, do you think? And what are the top things he needs to try and avoid doing? Uh, So good day, Peter. So, Peter, I think the reality for South Africa, all things considered, is that there's limited options in terms of what we're able to do uh, to manage the resurgence and to avoid a further escalation of the resurgence. And what I'm saying is that from economic perspective and also in terms of what the impact of further restrictions would be in terms of the trajectory of the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, there's very little room to maneuver. So I would be highly surprised uh, if there's anything more than an extension of the timelines of the adjusted level three lockdown. I don't think the country is in a position to go into a level four, level five lockdown or any further tightening of the restrictions in terms of level three. Uh, And I think what we also need to understand uh, is that uh, going into higher levels of lockdown in the absence of any meaningful rollout of COVID-19 vaccines in the near future, all that it will achieve is really delay the infections that might occur over the course of the next four to six weeks. A lockdown by no stretch of the imagination, as South Africa unfortunately showed the first time round, when there was even less virus that was actually circulating, uh, a lockdown does a highly level restrictive lockdown does not get rid of the virus. All that it does is buys you time, and that's as much as was achieved the first time round. So again, I would be very surprised if there's anything more than an extension of uh, the timelines in terms of the adjusted level three lockdown, and I think that is required. Uh, to start off with, South Africa should at no stage, uh, when we went into level one as well, and I had said the same in oct- September, October, Uh, At that stage, it was a complete miscalculation to allow for any sort of mass gatherings to take place. Essentially, much of the infections were either directly or indirectly related to mass gatherings, to this sort of super spread events 
which is pretty much what has sort of ignited the flames in terms of what we're currently experiencing uh, in South Africa. Listening to your past interviews, there's a real sort of running frustration through them. And it's as if from your experience as a vaccinologist now in the middle of a pandemic, that the government keeps not getting something that's important. Often when you're being interviewed, people talk over you, say, I'm trying not to do that. But what do you think from what you've seen so far? Is it that the government doesn't quite understand? So to start off with, what would have been useful right at the start is to understand that uh, dealing with respiratory virus is not the same as dealing with HIV or dealing with TB in terms of the strategies that are required to prevent the spread of a respiratory virus. And more so, when you're dealing with a novel respiratory virus to which there is very little population immunity, and then when you take it a step further to try to sort of extrapolate from an experience in sort of island nations, such as South Korea or Iceland and New Zealand, and to expect that you can uh, bring about the same sort of control of circulation of the virus with very different resources available to you, uh, lends itself to miscalculations. So right now, I still don't think we fully grasp in terms of what are the major drivers uh, when it comes to resurgences taking place, especially for a virus where there's limited uh, immunity at a population level. Uh, and then, again, just to emphasize, uh, and the WHO was on record saying the same thing uh, when we were in a level five lockdown, is that the lockdown is not an exit strategy from COVID-19. Uh, a lockdown has got a very specific purpose at a specific uh, point in time. And a lockdown, unfortunately, in New, in New Zealand and South Korea and those places, and South Korea never went into a lockdown for that matter, only works when you've got an adequate strategy in place at an early stage of the outbreak that you have a very low threshold for identifying individuals that might be infected and you're highly efficient uh, in tracing their close contacts put, to put them into quarantine. If you don't have the resources to do that, uh, you're not going to achieve much with the lockdown other than to do what South Africa did. And that is delay the first peak of the first wave, the total number of infections based on the modelers themselves that actually occurred during the first wave in South Africa uh, didn't actually change. All that it did was that it delayed when those infections took place and perhaps spread it out over a period of time that was a bit longer than had we not gone into a lockdown. When we're dealing with the resurgence, it's become even a greater problem. So unlike at the early stage of the outbreak, when there's limited amount of virus that has seeded, what we now got in South Africa is that the virus has seeded throughout the country, throughout all the communities in South Africa. So in that context, uh, a highly restrictive lockdown, again, even becomes less meaningful in terms of being able to get on top of the outbreak and certainly not going to be flattening any curve. Uh, all that you're going to do, like I said, is delay the resurgence. Prof, in you, you, your estimate of uh, listening to an interview I think you did about a month ago with uh, Dennis Davis, was that about, and I might just tell me if I'm misrepresenting you, was that about 35% of the population had been infected, whether they were uh, sick or otherwise. Is that number correct, do you think? Is that number accurate? Correct. So that uh, estimate was uh, based on data that came out from the Cape Metro, 
as well as based on data that was coming out from the vaccine trials that we were undertaking, mainly in Gauteng, uh, where we were screening individuals to see if they were either actively infected with the virus or they had past exposure. So in the Cape Metro, uh, across the different uh, sub-districts in the Cape Metro, in fact, the estimate is up to 45% in a place such as Kailisha and close on to 35% in Constantia. Uh, in Gauteng, we're actually currently completing a serious survey, which will give us estimates at a sub-district level, at each of the sub-district levels, in fact. Uh, to get a granular understanding in terms of what transpired in Gauteng, at least during the course of the first wave. And the uh, early readout for Gauteng uh, is roughly about 25%, so lower than the 35%. But I suspect that is an average for Gauteng. And when we break it down at sub-district level, a place such as Dipsluit and such as Alexandra probably is going to be coming close to one-third, Whereas a place such as how such a Senton uh, will probably come in at the lower end of maybe twenty percent or even fifteen percent. Yes. So the average right now is twenty five percent for Gauteng. That is for the first wave. And with the surge, presumably that that um, percentage will rise exponentially because the surge is significantly more um, uh, certainly looks a lot more menacing than the first first wave. Correct. Unfortunately, the variant that's currently circulating in South Africa, based on uh, the experience in the UK, uh, which has a similar variant in terms of transmissibility, indicates that this virus is about 53% more transmissible than the virus that was circulating during the course of the first wave. And the current variant that's circulating in South Africa has largely displaced uh, the other variants of the virus that has circulated and has become the dominant variant. Uh, accounting for close to 90% of all infections that are taking place. So in a context where you don't have adequate uh, community immunity to limit the rate of uh, transmission of the virus, coupled with a more transmissible virus, uh, the reason we're finding such massive resurgences taking place uh, much quicker than what occurred during the course of the first wave, one of the reasons uh, is that we're dealing with a more transmissible virus. Uh, which and means more cases in being infected over a shorter period of time, more people being hospitalized over a shorter period of time, more people dying over a shorter period of time, not because the virus is more dangerous in terms of its virulence, but simply because in terms of absolute numbers, more people are getting infected over a shorter period of time. What does that do then to this notion of herd immunity? I mean, if it's 35% on in the first wave and you add... This let's say let even if it was another thirty five percent, which would seem to be an underestimation, we're at seventy percent of the population by the end of the second wave, uh, which seems to be what the government calculates to be already herd immunity. Yeah. So Peter, unfortunately, things have become a bit more complex uh, than, and it wouldn't just be a sum game between the two, uh, because obviously many of the people that will be exposed uh, during the course of the second wave. Uh, that 35, 40% of people that are probably going to get infected, a fair percentage of those might be the same people that are being re-exposed to the virus because people that are more guarded in terms of their behavior, their exposure to the virus will still remain somewhat nominal compared to the others. So it's not really sort of a sum game of 35% and 35%. It will probably sit at about 40% of people having had some exposure across two waves. So you're not going to get to 70%. Uh, again, it's simply because of the dynamics of how the virus transfers and who is actually 
who are the people that are really being exposed. So as an example, people that are using uh, taxis, the minibuses, uh, they're more likely to have exposures during the course of the first wave and again this time down. But now the bigger problem that we face right now, unfortunately, uh, is that a new variant, specifically the variant that's circulating in South Africa, uh, there's strong indications uh, that uh, that virus that's currently circulating is going to be less susceptible to the antibody that was induced after infection following earlier variants of the virus that were circulating. So now there's huge question marks in terms of what type of immunity is going to evolve from natural infection against the new variant. Uh, based on the studies that have been published to date, uh, just laboratory-based studies, it indicates that the potency of the antibody that was induced uh, by in people that were infected with other variants of the virus when they were circulating, the potency of that antibody is decreased at least tenfold, if not more, in a majority of people. So the so-called immunity uh, might not actually materialize the way we would have hoped for it to immunize. Uh, evolved uh, simply because of the evolution of this virus and these mutations that have taken place at very critical components of the virus, which firstly makes it more transmissible, but in addition to that also lessens its sensitivity to the antibody at least uh, that was induced with exposure to previous variants. That's extremely alarming uh, news, and I've not heard that before because it's been presumed until now, that the that the uh, vaccines that we're going to be getting, and you were you were very involved. You led the the trial program of the AstraZeneca Oxford University vaccine in South Africa, um, uh, which we've now secured um, doses uh, of from India for a million and a half doses over the next couple of weeks. Um, that vaccine was designed to combat what we assume was the first variant. Uh, you know, from what I've heard, most people have been quite uh, calm about the the, poss- the probability that it would also work against the second variant. But what you're saying is that it might not. Uh, so we, fortunately, unfortunately, depending how you look at it, will actually have an answer within the course of a few weeks, literally within the course of the next three to four weeks. Uh, at two levels, both from the laboratory as well as from the clinical trials that are currently underway in South Africa, where we will know whether these vaccines that are being evaluated in South Africa actually does protect against this variant. Uh, and so it's not sort of, uh, it's sort of not, it's not a sort of a yes or no. Uh, yes. Because like I said, there's a tenfold reduction in terms of the potency of antibody that's induced following natural infection. But we do know that there's other arms of the immune system that are also induced in in terms of what we call T-lymphocyte immunity. But now in addition to that, uh, the big question is what is the minimum concentration of antibody that you require to protect against uh, an infection? So if the vaccines, it's an example, uh, induce an antibody response which is far in excess of that minimum, minimum concentration, even if there's a tenfold reduction in potency, the vaccine can still induce immunity, still provide protection. Uh, And those are some of the big unknowns. But within the course of literally the next, uh, in fact, three to four weeks at the most, uh, we probably will have a definitive answer in terms of whether vaccines actually protect against this variant. I'm cautiously optimistic it will, uh, but time will tell. 
you 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 intimately were intimately involved have been intimately involved in the development of the AstraZeneca um Oxford vaccine um and obviously the president has got himself out of a hole by securing these um uh, doses for healthcare workers and frontline workers from from India um uh there was i wanted to ask you because there was a moment where it seemed that the indians were saying no 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 we are only going to begin supplying the rest of the world when we have um uh, inoculated our own population how do you imagine that we were able to suddenly secure these million and a half doses was would the there's a gates foundation involvement in this vaccine that i wonder and i wonder whether you're able to provide us with any kind of insight into how how we managed to secure the million and a half doses that we have. Yeah, so I think you sort of alluded to how we actually secured it. Uh, it's not a Gates Foundation that's been involved. The Gates Foundation is involved with Serum Institute of India in terms of providing it funding so that it can make vaccine available to low-middle-income countries. But that's not the reason why South Africa was successful in getting this limited quantity. And India's, India's stance has not actually changed in that uh, most of the vaccine that's going to be manufactured initially by SII, Serum Institute of India, will be, for the, will be kept behind uh, to serve as the needs of India. And the only way that this happened probably is uh, it took interactions at the highest levels, and that is between the president of South Africa and the prime minister of India probably, uh, to yeah. be able to secure the sort of almost token gesture in terms of releasing 1.5 million doses of vaccine, which coincidentally is not adequate to cover the entire healthcare workforce, let alone all frontline uh, workers. Uh, the healthcare force in South Africa is close on to 1.2 million, if you include all other categories of staff that work in healthcare facilities over and above doctors and nurses. Uh, and for that, you need two and a half, 2.4 million doses of vaccine. So even the 1.5 million I think was sort of a token gesture and probably a leveraging on the goodwill of being part of BRICS and the goodwill yeah. that exists between South Africa and India. Does it matter, Prof, whether we mix vaccines? In other words, if we, if you know, if if there are more than one vaccine in the system, you know, if, if the next one is uh, the Pfizer or, or a Chinese one or a Russian one, I mean, are, these 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 things can't hurt you, can they? I mean. I know that people are anti, you know, a lot of people are anti any vaccine at all. Um, but it's highly unlikely that any of these vaccines in production or in under trials would would physically damage anybody who who took one. Uh, correct. So I don't, at an individual level, um, I don't think there would be issues around the safety of mixing vaccines. But I would be more concerned about the efficacy, how well the vaccines work when it comes to mixing vaccines. Because remember, many of these vaccines are using very different sort of technologies, yeah. uh, which might sort of uh, require different sort of immune responses to get an optimal response. Yeah. Uh, so as an example, the AstraZeneca vaccine uses a completely different uh, technology to the Pfizer vaccine. And then mixing those sort of vaccines in the absence of those experiments having been done, I think that's something I wouldn't advise for at this stage. Yes. Uh, so it would need to be like for like that you're mixing rather than complete different technologies uh, in the absence of the evidence to support that you would get the same sort of immune response. But at yes. a population level, 
using more than one vaccine at a population level, provided people get the same sort of vaccine they got at the first dose, that's not a problem. Yeah. The, gov the government's target is 40 million people by the end of this year. And you've been a bit skeptical about that. Well, that's not going to happen under any stretch of the imagination for a number of reasons. Uh, the first reason is that 40% of the population, uh, uh, the target of 40 million is 67% of the population. Uh, and you can't even get to that number unless you get 100% of adults vaccinated uh, because the vaccines are not authorized for use in individuals under the age of 16, uh, which roughly accounts for about 30% of the South African population to start off with. So mm -hmm. those numbers uh, don't uh, gel in terms of uh, who the vaccine is authorized for. I saw yesterday in the Sunday Times it was reported that uh, the Minister of Health has now indicated that the target is uh, no longer 40 million, but 40% of the South African population, which becomes a much more meaningful target, uh, both in terms of who you're actually probably going to reach out to, what the acceptance of the vaccine is going to be, as well as most importantly, the logistics of implementation. Uh, at 40 million people, if we were to start on the 1st of April, uh, for the first month for the vaccine that would require two doses, we would have needed to vaccinate 150,000 people a day, seven days a week till the end of the, for that month. And after that, that increases to 300,000 people per day until the end of the year, seven days a week. Uh, there's no country in the world, except for Israel, that has come close to vaccinating 150,000 people per day. And Israel is a very different country in terms of its state machinery, in terms of its land size, in terms of its resources to be able to get that, to that sort of a mark. The United Kingdom, United States have been struggling to get even to 50 and 60,000 per day. So to imagine that we were going to get 300,000 people injected per day, I think that would be, it would take the stretch of imagination to sort of reach that sort of a target. I'm just going to ask, if I'm, uh, and this, might, this is not a frivolous question, and I'm not trying to make light of it, but it's, it's not very hard injecting people. Um, you know, if you could practice uh, on an orange if you, if you needed to. And, You know, we have so many people out tracking and tracing and, you know, there are a lot of unemployed people, there are a lot of medical students or, or, or students just generally. I mean, you could, in theory, get an army out there um, of people with vaccines to put into shoulder, to put into arms. Yeah, so there are minimum qualifications uh, that are required in terms of uh, health, the HPCSA uh, legislation as to who can vaccinate and who can't vaccinate. So as an example, uh, finally, a medical student probably would be allowed to vaccinate, uh, but certainly not someone that doesn't have any medical training. Uh, and it's more than just about injecting people. Yes, you can go door to door and inject people, but that's not the way you can do it because uh, for all of these vaccines, you need to observe an individual for at least 15 minutes after vaccination to exclude side effects. And you need to have facilities in place Uh, that if there is sort of uh, allergic reaction to the vaccine, that you've got the necessary resuscitation equipment. So you cannot do this in the absence of actually having trained personnel, not just to vaccinate, but also to attend to medical emergencies. And you need to have that 15-minute observation period. Yeah. Uh, it's, like I said, much more complex than just walking around with measles and punching people from behind. The... the, um, the Back to the earlier point about mixing and matching vaccines, the AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson um, uh, vaccines are are similar, are they not? I mean, they 
they're what they call an adenovirus virus. Um, they have an adenovirus base anyway. Um, that, and that's correct. So right now, in fact, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, in terms of whether it works or not, is being evaluated as a single-dose vaccine. Uh, and if that single dose doesn't work, uh, then they would need to go for a two-dose schedule. And you yeah. certainly could mix those two doses. In fact, uh, it, uh, scientifically, you probably would get a better response if you were to mix a single dose of AstraZeneca vaccine and a single dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because yeah. they use different sort of adenovirus vectors and that would actually improve the, second, uh, the immune response to the second dose. Adenovirus means that basically that, that, that this has been built out of the virus taken from or, or, or tissue taken from living, living creatures, animals or monkeys or apes of some kind. Correct. So the AstraZeneca one is known as a chimp adenovirus. So it's mainly found in the chimp population. There's a very low amount of circulation in humans, less than 2% in very highly where it really does exist, might be previously exposed. The, the Johnson & Johnson, Johnson is a different adenovirus, one that's more commonly found in humans, but also at low prevalence. So using two different adenoviruses as your vectors, it does have its advantages in terms of improving on the immune responses. Yes. Rob, I just want to talk about behavior generally going forward for people. How do you keep I mean, you work with this stuff all the time. You're in touch with, you know, you're in, you're, you're in, you're close to viruses and you're close to people who are in trials. I mean, how do you keep yourself personally alive or not sick? Yeah, I mean, the, the most important thing, now that we know that the dominant uh, mode of transmission of this virus is airborne transmission, uh, it's about uh, making sure that there's adequate ventilation. So even if I were to have a meeting in my research unit with many other people in a room, every window is open. And unless someone is speaking, everyone has got their face mask on. Uh, and you want thing to do, that's exactly, I mean, it's not that we need to live our lives in a bubble uh, and we can't continue doing that. And COVID-19, we're probably going to experience yet another resurgence come May, June, and probably even another one uh, three, four months later. So this is only the first resurgence and we're probably uh, on a pathway for at least two more resurgences. And it's really all about avoiding mass gatherings, especially in indoor spaces and adequate ventilation and a face mask. And that's as far as you need to go. Uh, I went on vacation. I was uh, on the beach, taking a walk on the beach. Uh, and that is probably one of the safest activities you can actually undertake. Uh, it's about 10 times safer than going to a shopping mall and probably about 50 times safer uh, than sitting in a minibus taxi. Uh, so it's really an understanding in terms of what are the greatest risks in terms of exposure and infection. And the greatest risk in terms of infection is being indoors in poorly ventilated areas with many people, especially people not wearing face masks. It's not about monitoring temperature, uh, and even hand hygiene in terms of sanitizers, yes, it's important, uh, but comes nowhere close to the importance of good ventilation and the wearing of face masks in public spaces, especially when indoors. What was you, how did you respond then to the to the um, to the banning of um, beaches to pe to people? I mean, we all understand that there are there are days in the year when beaches become completely overcrowded, New Year's Day, Christmas Day, 
Um, but do you think that is, that was a reasonable regulation? Do you think that's been a reasonable thing to do? Maybe specifically for those uh, one or two days, uh, Christmas, New, uh, Boxing Day and New Year's uh, Day, maybe for those days where the beaches are just completely overwhelmed, it probably does make sense. But as an example, uh, what happened when I was uh, on vacation on the 26th uh, is uh, I was, the beaches were shut down. And all that happened is that all of these holidaymakers were in the restaurants yeah. uh, during the day. And they were in the pubs during the day. And that just simply defeats the entire purpose. In fact, it actually exacerbates the problem in terms of transmission. So there's a disconnect in terms of prob- sort of banning what is re- a relatively low-risk activity, but still allowing for indoor dining to take place. It's still allowing for people to gather in the bars during the day. Uh, there's a disconnect here. And that's been one of the struggles that we've had. I don't think we've always got that balance right. And I mean, it went back to level three. Once we started to allow for 100% occupancy in terms of these minibus taxis, that defied any sort of logic in terms of trying to actually limit the rate of transmission. In fact, the Ministerial Advisory Committee at that stage came out strongly to say that taxis shouldn't be allowed to operate at more than 50% occupancy. Yet, we allowed for 100% occupancy in taxis. So, unfortunately, not everything that's being decided on is informed by science, and often we're at odds in terms of the actual science, especially when it comes to what tools do actually reduce uh, transmission of the virus or can at least limit the rate of transmission. Because what... what the president then did later on in December, having closed some of those beaches, having closed the beaches, was to uh, sort of close them or, 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 to, or to tighten the thing even further. So in a, in, in a way, forcing people into, um, into restaurants, okay, they couldn't drink, which may make a difference um, in trauma units because dealing with drunk people uh, in a busy hospital is difficult enough. Um, but in a way, I mean, the government seems not to understand what it's doing. You you talk about super spreader events, and we understand that there have been some very, you know, spectacular ones online, stu- uh, matriculants in Belito and people at concerts. But even a funeral can be a super spreader event, I presume. Uh, certainly. Uh, in fact, a fu- in fact uh, I think funerals have been a major source of super spreader events. And I mean, I've got information where someone volunteered that they got infected after having attended a funeral in the Eastern Cape that involved 2,000 people, uh, not even 50 people. And that was in the past two to three weeks. Uh, so funerals have been a major source of transmission of this virus unquestionably uh, in different communities. Uh, and I think that, that is reality. So. Again, the current ban in terms of beaches, as an example, uh, it just absolutely doesn't gel in terms of what we're trying to achieve. If you're wanting people to accumulate indoors, then have a ban on outdoor activities. Not allowing for uh, the parks to be open, uh, it just doesn't assist in terms of what you're trying to achieve if it's about trying to slow rate of transmission uh, but still keep some sort of an open society, allow people outdoors uh, rather than giving them reason to go indoors. Well, what was it like being on the MEC? I mean, where you, give, where you give the advice and what comes out of the advice that you're giving is this sort of mishmash of regulations, which are obviously, 
you know, which obviously contain other people's political agendas and, and, and their concerns, and this person has to be satisfied and this person has to be satisfied. Is there, I mean, it must have been very frustrating and it must have made, you must have been, in a way, a bit relieved to have been not, uninvited on, on the MAC. Well, I can't say that my stress level has certainly decreased since not being on the MAC for pretty much the reason that you mentioned in that it really uh, sort of doesn't serve much purpose when the MAC is asked to uh, make recommendations on something only to be told that there's many other players uh, around the table and that the final decision needs to be weighed uh, based on the interest of all of the other players and all other considerations. And that doesn't always lend itself to good science. Uh, I, I think we either need to take a scientific position or thing, on things, or we need to decide that we're going to try to appease as many constituencies as is possible. But that comes at a price. And that's one of the, price, one of the prices we're currently paying in South Africa. It's a consequence of trying to appease multiple uh, groups of people at the same time uh, while it's not necessarily always uh, taking what should be the most scientifically thought-out uh, strategy. There's no, there's no reason to believe that that won't happen again tonight when the president speaks to us in one of his family chats, uh, I'm sure. Um, do you think South Africans have any kind of inbuilt um, resistance to to some of the viruses that other people fall victim to. I mean, while we've lost a lot of people, you know, we're a pretty big country. I mean, we have almost as many, you know, we have the pop, we have a population the size of Britain almost. Um, um, and our, our death levels, our levels of fatalities don't seem to be anywhere near as high. And I wonder whether we aren't, don't have sort of built-in immunity simply because we grow up the way we do grow up. So there's two parts to that. Uh, there's two parts to that answer. The first part, in fact, South Africa hasn't been spared when it comes to death from COVID-19. Uh, and what we need to appreciate is that the number of reported in terms of diagnosed cases doesn't represent the full number that have actually died. And the more accurate number, or at least estimate, in terms of the number of people that have succumbed to COVID-19, is the Medical Research Council excess mortality data which basically indicates that we're probably underestimating COVID-19 deaths by as much as around about 60 to 70%. Now, when using that in a context where we probably have had very high forces of infection to start off with, the first part is that the mortality rate from COVID-19 using the excess mortality data is in a region of about 85 per 100,000 for the first wave. And that, in fact, is even higher than the mortality rate that was experienced in the United Kingdom and many other, uh, including uh, in, I think it was Italy, uh, during the course of the first wave, where the mortality rate was roughly about 75 per 100,000. We were sitting at 85 wow. per 100,000 using the excess mortality data. But the difference is, in Spain, as an example, less than 10% of the population were infected with COVID-19 during the course of the first wave. Whereas in South Africa, we're estimating that anything probably between 25 and 35% of the population were infected. So our mortality rate is similar, but our mortality rate is occurring in a context of a much higher level of exposure. So there's another important metric, uh, which is known as the infection mortality rate, which now uses a denominator 
as anyone that was infected with the virus. And our yeah. infection mortality rate probably is substantially lower than the infection mortality rate in the United Kingdom, in Spain, and Italy. So yes, there is probably some sort of underlying immunity that's providing some level of cross-immunity, not from infection with the virus, but rather from that infection progressing to disease. And those are very two different things. So what even if you- you've got immunity, you can get infected, but the important thing is not to progress to severe yeah. disease. What would you say right now, because I'm interested in this debate about infection mortality rate and case mortality rate, um, uh, because the sort of the COVID skeptics like Panda argue that that ultimately this thing will turn out to have been, when it's all done, no more dangerous than flu. You know, what, um, and what, what would you calculate and roughly um, our current infection mortality rate to be? So based on uh, the Cape Metro, uh, because that's the data that was available, uh, during the course of the first wave, the infection mortality rate was in a region of about 0.3%. Seasonal influenza has got an infection mortality rate of about 0.01%. One third of South Africans become infected, or at least are exposed, to seasonal influenza each year, one third. Yeah. And the number of people that die of seasonal influenza is in a region of about ten to 11,000 per year. Right. Uh, so here we're talking of one-third of people probably having been infected with uh, COVID-19, uh, but we're talking at that stage during the course of the first wave, uh, we were looking at about 40,000 uh, right. people having died based on excess mortality data, in fact, higher than 40,000. And Prof, can I just ask you about the excess mortality rate as well? Because there must be an extent to which um, people who are suffering from diseases that can't be treated in hospital now because of the pressure on bed space and doctors and healthcare workers generally, are there people out there dying of diabetic complaints or tuberculosis uh, or cancer who who we might mistakenly be identifying as excess COVID mortalities. So the the way to analyze the data is to actually look at a trajectory of excess mortality in relation to the trajectory of the circulation of the virus. And when you look at countries such as the United Kingdom, US, etc., there's 100% synchronization in terms of the numbers as well as the trajectories of that excess mortality and the COVID-19 reported deaths. And those countries have got robust systems so they can pretty much detect almost every death that's taking place. Now in South Africa, their trajectories are also completely in sync in terms of when it's uh, evolving, when it's peaking, when it's subsiding. So yes, there are some people uh, that might die from other conditions, but the type of examples that you mentioned are good examples, tuberculosis, HIV, diabetes. Those are chronic conditions, and people don't die overnight from those conditions or the complications of those conditions. Those are deaths which, unfortunately, in South Africa are yet to materialize. So I do agree that there's been compromise in terms of the care of individuals with TB, including delayed diagnosis. There's been compromise in terms of people with HIV accessing treatment. There's been compromise in terms of early diagnosis of cancer and, and diabetes management. But unfortunately, those deaths are yet to materialize. And those deaths, because of what happened last year, will probably only materialize this year. 
Prof, two, two more two more questions, if I may. When when will you relax? I mean, in terms of in terms of vaccines, how many how much more how many how much more vaccine do we need to secure before you'll be able to say to yourself, I can see the end of this? You know, even if it's not, even if the government is exaggerating how quickly it can um, it can uh, inoculate people, uh, how much how much harder do we have to work to get and secure vaccine? So the first sigh of relief will come in the next three to four weeks uh, when we report on whether these vaccines actually protect against the variant. And I think that's going to be a critical moment, not just for South Africa, but globally. Because yeah. if there's any drop-off in terms of the efficacy of the vaccine against the variant, then we're going to have some big problems coming our way. But if these vaccines work, I would be highly satisfied. And I think we would make marked inroads in terms of uh, sort of preventing the sort of resurgences we're experiencing by getting at least about one third of our population vaccinated by the end of the year. Prof, where is this research being done into the variant? Uh, that research, in fact, is being done in South Africa, both the laboratory work as well as the clinical trials, which is what we're doing currently. Uh, we'll yeah. get a readout from those clinical trials in a matter of a few weeks and as to whether these vaccines protect. Yes, we will be reporting that. Yeah. And Prof, just one last thing. Are you, do you normally, and will you this year, be getting a flu shot? Does it help? Uh, it certainly helps. Uh, and the big issue with flu last year is that we did encourage people to get vaccinated, but because of our borders being shut, there was very little flu that ended up being imported into the country and very little flu that was uh, circulating. And there wasn't much influenza at all. Uh, no, in fact, we haven't seen this for the past 20, 25 years that I've been working on respiratory viruses where there simply wasn't an influenza season. Uh, this year, because there's been more mobility, uh, it depends when our borders open, but if our borders are open to international travel, we can expect the virus to arrive. And then certainly people, especially those individuals at high risk of developing severe influenza disease who are the same as high risk of developing COVID, they certainly should be vaccinated. Yeah. Professor uh, Shabir Mahdi, thank you very, very much for joining us. You do such a fantastic job uh, for us all, and uh, we really, really appreciate it and really appreciate you um, talking to me today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed listening to Prof Mahdi as much as I did uh, interviewing him. Podcast from the Edge will be back next week with another interesting guest to try and answer the questions no one asks because we don't want to sound stupid. Remember to look for us on the Financial Mail website and its social media platforms as well as on Spotify and the Apple Podcast app. We're everywhere. We're out of control. We'll see you next week. <laughs>